Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 15. Today we will be reading Book 5, Chapters 1 through 4 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So as we launch into book five, Augustine begins the book by a reflection again on the discussion of evil and the Catholic versus the Manichaean account of evil that we we first kind of picked up in book three kind of begins by returning to that discussion. So we'll look at that a little bit. And then it's also at this time in Augustine's life that he has the opportunity to meet with a bishop of the Manichaeans named Faustus. The interactions with Faustus, his coming to Carthage is highly anticipated by St. Augustine and the interactions that St. Augustine has with him greatly influence what's to come next. So we will see how that all plays out in these coming chapters. So before we get to the reading, let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 1. Accept the sacrifice of my confession from the ministry of my tongue, which you formed and now stir up to confess unto your name. Heal all my bones, and let them say, O Lord, who is like you? For he who confesses to you does not teach you anything about what is going on with him. Even a closed heart does not shut out your gaze, nor can man's hard-heartedness stay your hand, for you open it at your will, whether in pity or vengeance, and there is nothing concealed from your heat. But let my soul praise you, so that it may love you, and let it confess to you your own mercy, so that it might praise you. Your whole creation neither ceases nor falls silent in its praise of you, neither man's spirit with a voice that is directed to you, nor either living things or inanimate things, through the words of those who meditate upon them, so that our souls may rise from their weariness toward you, leaning on the things that you have created, passing from them on to you who so wonderfully fashioned them. It is there that refreshment and true strength is to be found. Chapter 2 let restless, wicked men depart and flee from you, yet you still see them and divide the darkness, and behold, the universe with them in it is fair, though they are foul. And how have they injured you, or how have they disgraced your government, which is just and perfect, from heaven to the lowliest point on earth? For where did they flee when they fled from your presence, or where do you not find them? 
but they fled so that they might not see you seeing them, and blinded might stumble upon you, for you forsake nothing you have made. Yes, the unjust stumble upon you, so that they might be justly troubled, withdrawing from your gentleness and stumbling upon your righteousness, falling all over the place on the rugged roads which they themselves have fashioned. All the while they are unaware that you are everywhere, you who are encompassed by no place, you who alone are near, even to those who are far from you. Let them be turned around and seek you, for they have not forsaken creation as they have forsaken you. Let them be turned and seek you. And behold, there you are, present within their heart, in the hearts of those who confess to you and cast themselves upon you, weeping in your bosom after treading on such rugged roads. Then you gently wipe away their tears while they weep all the more, feeling joy in their tears. For you, Lord, who are not a man of flesh and blood, but rather the Lord who made them, now recreate and comfort them. But where was I when I was seeking you? And there you were before me, even though I had gone far from you. But I did not find myself, much less you. Chapter 3 Before the sight of my God, I speak now of my twenty-ninth year. A certain bishop Faustus of the Manichaeans came to Carthage. He was a great snare used by the devil, and many were entangled by him, lured in by his smooth tongue. And I also did commend it, however I could distinguish it from the truth of those things that I desired so earnestly to learn. Nor was I so concerned with his skill in speaking as I was with the knowledge for which this Faustus was widely praised, now set before me to feed upon. His fame went before him, and I was told that he was the most knowledgeable of men in all that was to be valued in learning, and also had the greatest skill in the liberal arts." Now since I had read and remembered in detail much of what the philosophers had written, I compared some of what they said with the lengthy fables promulgated by the Manichaeans. And I found the philosophers' teaching more likely than the Manichaeans, even though they only had strength enough to judge concerning this lower world, while wholly failing to discover its Lord. For you are on high, Lord, and look upon the lowly, but the haughty you know from afar. Yes, you only draw near to those who are contrite in heart and are not found by the proud, no, even if their diligent skill is aptly applied in numbering the stars and grains of sand, able to measure the expanse of the starry heavens and to chart the course of the planets. For with their understanding and cleverness which you bestowed upon them, they searched out these things, and much did they indeed discover, foretelling many years ahead of time eclipses of sun and moon, accounting the day and hour, and measuring their durations, all with unfailing calculations. They all come to pass as they foretold, and they wrote down the rules they had discovered. To this day we read and use these rules, thereby foretelling the year, month, day, and hour of the eclipses of sun and moon, telling what portion of its light will be shadowed, and all of it comes to pass as foretold. This arouses the admiration and astonishment of men who do not know this art, and they who do know it exult and puff out their chests with pride. Thus, by an ungodly pride that departs from you, passing out of your light, they foresee the passing away of the sun's light so far in the future, all the while not noticing their own darkening. For they do not religiously seek out the source of this intelligence that enables them to seek out these things. And when they discover that you made them, they do not give themselves over to you in order to preserve what you have made, nor do they sacrifice to you what they have made themselves into. 
nor do they slay their own soaring imaginations like the birds of the air, nor their diving curiosities with which, like the fish of the sea, they wander all over the hidden depths of the abyss, nor their own extravagant luxuries like the beasts of the field, also that you, O Lord, who are a consuming fire, might burn up these dead cares of theirs and recreate them in immortality. But they knew not the way, your word, by whom you made all these things which they number, as well as the men themselves who numbered them, and the sense power by which they perceive what they number, and the understanding through which they number. Nor do they know that your understanding is beyond measure. But the only begotten is himself our wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and was numbered among us, paying tribute to Caesar. They knew not this way, by which they could descend from themselves to him, and by him to ascend to him. They knew not this way, but instead deemed themselves exalted among the stars and brilliant. And behold, they fell to the earth with foolish hearts that were darkened. They discourse about many things, speaking truly about creatures. However, they do not piously seek out truth, the maker of creatures, and therefore do not find him. Or if they did find him, knowing him to be God, they however did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but instead became vain in their imaginings, claiming to be wise, and attributing to themselves what in fact belongs to you. And thus, with the most perverse kind of blindness, they study in order to impute to you what is theirs as creatures, forging lies concerning you who are the truth, and exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for images resembling corruptible man, birds, animals, or reptiles, exchanging your truth for a lie, and worshipping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Still, however, I did retain from these men many truths concerning creatures and saw the reason behind their calculations for the succession of time periods, visibly confirmed by the stars themselves. And I compared them to the sayings of Manny, which in his delirium he wrote, saying much about these same subjects. But there I discovered no account of the solstices, nor of equinoxes, nor the eclipses of the greater lights of the sky, nor anything else of this sort that I did learn from the books of worldly philosophers." Nonetheless, I was commanded to believe, but it did not correspond with what had been established both by calculations and by my own sight. Indeed, it was quite opposed to it. Chapter 4. Therefore, Lord God of truth, does anyone who knows these things please you? Surely he who knows these things but does not know you is unhappy, whereas he who does not know them but knows you is happy. And whoever knows both you and them is not happier because he knows these truths about the heavens, but rather is so only because he knows you. If knowing you, he honors you as God and gives you thanks, not becoming futile in his thinking. Indeed, he who knows that he possesses a tree and likewise gives thanks to you for the use of it is better off, even if he does not know how high it is or how wide it spreads. Then is the person who can measure it and count all its branches without, however, owning it, or knowing or loving its creator. The same is true of the believer to whom all the riches of the world belong, having nothing yet possessing all things, by clinging to you whom all things serve, even if he does not know about the circling path of the constellation Ursa Major. Yes, it is folly to doubt that he is in a better state than is the man who can measure out the heavens, number the stars, and weigh out the elements while neglecting you, who have arranged all things in number, weight, and measure. All right, book five. Here we go. Kicking it off. Ready to go, Father Gregory? Oh, yeah. Born ready. All right. I think Augustine's ready too, so let's let's get going. <laughs> so book five begins, St. Augustine's still living in Carthage in the big city, crushing it, 
maybe not crushing it. Uh, he's 29 at this point, so still some years away from his conversion. Um, and as I mentioned at the top of the episode, St. Augustine begins by reflecting on evil. He speaks about uh, wicked men praising God simply by their existence. You know, that that all of creation can't help but give glory to God in some way, even if the wicked man is indeed foul or wicked himself. So he's, he's pretty convinced that creation, even the mere existence of things, gives praise and glory to God. And he, he talks here too, again, as we mentioned, about, about evil. So why don't we, because St. Augustine does, why don't we give a quick synopsis of, of the sort of setting, the conversation here, because it'll come up, it's a, it's a big sticking point, this topic of evil with the Manichaeans, and because St. Augustine is, is going to be meeting this Bishop Faustus as, as we continue to turn the pages, let's not set the scene, but do a reminder setting, if, if you don't mind, Father Gregory, for us. Yeah. I actually think one of the cool elements of the beginning of this book is that evil is described with a new kind of personalistic approach. So obviously the description of evil in book two was personalistic insofar as he was confronted by the personal nature of his sin and also the personal insanity, which lay in the background of it. Here though, you get the impression that sin or evil in general is a kind of personal diminishment because there's a line when he says like, you know, I was seeking for you, you were there before me, but I had departed from myself. So like, I couldn't even find myself, much less you. So this notion that evil, you know, we've referred to it as a privation of the good. So it describes what ought to be there, but isn't. But it's also, it's like an existential diminishment in the sense that by sinning and by, you know, accumulating vices, we become less so ourselves. And in becoming less so ourselves, we start to lose the capacity to address our questions to God and to hear the answers which he poses in turn. So we can never wholly blot out, you know, the presence of God from our lives and from the world because he's our creator. So he's always going to be present to us at the level of nature in some way, shape or form. But we can bring it about that, that our hearts become so kind of scarred over or so obscured from the truth that we just lose a hold on God and self. So I thought that that was very, yeah, it's just very powerful, his testimony here. Yeah. And as, as St. Augustine is reflecting on sort of the nature of evil, losing himself in that. And it's a good reminder for us of, of what evil is, as St. Augustine has taught us earlier, that it's it's not as if evil exists in a sort of way that is the same with the goodness and the good of creation and, and creation itself. It's evil's not kind of equal but opposite thing to good, but rather it's a privation or a lack. It's something that's missing. So even as St. Augustine reflects on the sort of losing himself or not being able to find himself, we can see that there's there's a lack even in that, in his engagement with sin, the, the darkness of his mind due to sin and, and all of those things. So yeah, it's just good to keep that in mind as, as we forge ahead in these kind of Manichaean days of considering these realities. So but at this point, St. Augustine gets excited because Faustus is coming to town. I don't know why, and this is probably a ridiculous thing, but when I was reading these chapters and thinking about Faustus coming to town, I had this sort of like image of like an evil like circus ringleader. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Yeah, With yeah. kind of like... Or circus master. Yeah, circus master kind of thing coming to town and um, <laughs> kind of like trying to ensnare people into his crazy sect. I don't know. That's really stupid. But um, he probably wasn't a ringleader or circus master or whatever. I don't think he was a bishop of a Manichaean sect, of the Manichaean sect. So I guess let's say let's say a bit about 
Faust is about this whole kind of anticipatory thing that Augustine is is recounting. Yeah, I think, I mean, just consider our own context in the 21st century, and we're kind of used to religious pluralism. So we're used to people, especially in the United States, having a variety of options. And uh, at least the way that the state or, you know, the nation treats those options, uh, it's like, you know, you can do this, you can do that, you can do the other thing. It doesn't it doesn't matter too terribly much to us. I think we've begun to taste a little bit of persecution in recent years, and certainly in the history of our nation. You think about the 19th century especially, there was a lot of persecution. But uh, yeah, we, we just kind of are of the mind that things in the public square are on somewhat equal footing, and people have options, and we just kind of mind our business. And in this instance, it's it's not the case, right? Because you just had the state religion for many centuries, and then you had Christianity decriminalized and then encouraged in certain quarters. And now you have this heresy, which kind of postures as if it were true Christianity, but it really does represent a threat because it's it's kind of come under cover of night and it's sown seeds of doubt and it's introduced confusion. And Augustine, you know, he's not going to be a big man for like religious toleration in his later life. He's not going to be like, hey, everyone just kind of go about your business, do your thing, especially if you've been baptized a Christian, because he thinks that that has like a real claim on your life and that you need to comport yourself accordingly. So here at this stage of the game, obviously, he's he's Manichaean, so he's sympathetic, and he's going to look to them for answers. But you get a sense of how heresy is really disruptive, not only for the life of the individual believer, but for the community and even for the polity itself. So it's a, it's a nice little look into the kind of um, sociopolitical situation of Augustine's fourth century life. Yeah. Now, Augustine's writing this after the fact, but he's reporting, at least to us, that there's skepticism. You know, he's the reason he's excited to meet Faustus is because other Manichees and other people who have been teaching him haven't satisfied his questions. They haven't answered what he's looking for. You remember, he's, he's searching for this wisdom. He wants to know the truth, but it's yet to be given to him in a way that is what I said satisfying already, so I'm going to use the same word in a way that's satisfying. So I think part of the anticipation is, ah, this might be it. This might be the person who can answer my questions. But I think, at least from reading and and listening to what St. Augustine has to say, that he's also skeptical that that's going to happen. Um, He can kind of see through it. So at this point, he, he before in these chapters, we don't get the encounter with Faustus just yet. It'll come later in the book. But as he's as he's anticipating the meeting, he asks some questions comparing Manichaean writing to the writing of, of philosophers, not of theologians, not of Saint Ambrose, not of you know, not of, of Catholics, but of philosophers. And he does so by he remember he kind of did this with Cicero in the scriptures, and now he's doing it with Manichaeans and philosophers because they're trying to address questions of of the created world, of encountering, of knowing the created world. And in doing so, he he recognizes that the philosophers, their pursuit of wisdom and knowledge doesn't lead them to God, but even so they seem to have a better handle on what the created world is than the Manichees. So this gives Augustine yet again some pause, some desire, you know, again, to have questions answered. But he's also, again, recognizing that the that the Manichaean answer to his questions not only doesn't satisfy him, but it also doesn't seem to correspond terribly well to the reality with which he is engaging. So, yeah, any thoughts, any any reflections, comments on that? Yeah, he has a nice little piece of logic here at the end of book three and like the beginning of book four, I guess, where he's talking about whether it's better to know God or nature. And he says, yeah, it's, I mean, it's good to know nature. Knowledge is good. Uh, it's better to know God, you know, because knowledge of the highest things is better because that knowledge is as noble as its object. And he says, I mean, if you know God and nature both, great, 
but that's not necessarily going to be better than knowledge of God. And that gives us a cool insight into our understanding of who God is. We had a course at the House of Studies called Creation and the Human Person. And uh, in that course, we read this book by Monsignor Sokolowski, who is a priest who teaches at Catholic University of America in their philosophy department. And he describes what he calls the Christian difference. And he says, you know, a lot of us have in our minds that, you know, creation is however much or however big or however whatever. And then God plus creation is like, you know, obviously it's bigger because God's involved. But we think of them as like things on the same footing that we add together and it makes a great little combo factor. He's like, no, that's just not true. He says, God plus creation is not greater than God. Which you hear that and you're like, whoa, like what does that signify? Because in God, we have everything. And we repeat this and people take it for like a little spiritual tidbit, like he means everything, like salvation is great, but I still might, you know, lose my dog who's going to die after 17 years. And that'll be sad and it'll be a bummer, but I guess I'll have God. It's like, no, you'll have everything, everything, because God is the creator of everything in a certain sense. And this word's going to sound fancy, pre-contains everything. Because everything that we experience here on this earth is patterned after, modeled after God. And what is more, it has its being from God directly and immediately and, you know, like ongoingly. So if God were to say, you know what, I'm going to stop thinking about Gregory here for a second, I would wink out of existence, right? Which would be a bummer. He's not going to do that. So don't be worried. But it's just to say that in God, we have everything. And his descriptions here of the knowledge of the philosophers, the knowledge of the Manichees, right? It touches on this very important point that we're, we're arguing through the different, you know, here's and there's of creation so as to arrive at their creator. And we ultimately ought to prize that knowledge, right? But in order to get at the deepest down, you know, like most intimate things of God, we need to have them revealed. And so he's kind of groping around in the dark to come to some of these conclusions, but already here, he has them formulated uh, in their beginnings. Yeah, he leaves us with a sort of warning that he's that he's issued before, but you know, in his in his questions about knowing and learning and these sort of things, and he he says that, and this will be good for us to carry forward. Um, he says that you know the pride or the vanity of the intellectual, the one seeking wisdom or knowledge or investigating the created world, is that he attributes he attributes the works of God to himself or to you know the knowledge of the created world to himself having figured it out you know where any bysteps or sidesteps the creator and this is really the the danger right of of intellectual pursuits of of coming to know or of pursuing wisdom at all that that you lose sight of the creator and not only lose sight of the creator but attribute the creator's work to yourself um so we should keep that in mind as as we go forward as we venture forth but also keep it in mind as we turn the pages and read about his encounters and his conversations with faustus and and how that prompts him to to move and to continue on his journey. So we'll leave it there for now. And we're going to pick up with Faustus and Augustine in tomorrow's episode as we continue through book five. So stay tuned, get excited. The evil circus ringleaders coming to town, you know? So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Mm-hmm.